As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Dan Bardell. And I'm Flo Lloyd-Hughes. And welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. We're live on YouTube and Twitter ahead of Friday's World Cup draw in Qatar. We're also going to take a look at England's chances and who we think the big contenders are going into the tournament. We're going to be doing it in excellent company. We're joined by Jack Pitt-Brook and Matt Slater to go over everything World Cup in Qatar. And plus, how about Gareth Bale's Wales, also the United States and Canada, and Mo Salah or Sadio Mane? Someone is going to miss out on going to this year's World Cup. Yeah, the big talking point for the weekend. Well, not even the biggest talking point of the weekend, Jack, but the biggest heartwarming thing that's come out of the international break so far, Christian Eriksen. I mean, he's already made a great comeback at Brentford and to see him scoring for his contract and what happened in the summer as well, just excellent scenes. Yeah, it was incredible to watch that. Just the clip, I'm sure, has been shared so many times already on social media. I think with every step of Ericsson's return to football so far, it's been more and more, uh, I was going to say heartwarming, but more and more kind of enjoyable and impressive. And I think everybody who remembers those horrific scenes with Ericsson during the Euros last year uh, will take great pride for and great enjoyment from seeing how much Ericsson is enjoying his football again. And I think everyone really looking forward to seeing him at the World Cup. Yeah, it strikes me as being quite understated with it as well, Matt. He doesn't really want to make a fuss, but what he's done, he's so incredible. It really is. And he's, you know, fantastic returns to football with Brentford as well. It's just a really good story, isn't it? I think we all agree. Nice, nice bloke, good footballer, lovely story. Uh, Matt, we're going to have to get you to some of the heavy lifting on, on the World Cup draw because you're actually going out to Qatar tomorrow. I am, I am indeed. So you're going to be flying out, actually going to the draw itself. Um, these things are always really complicated. Um, I think these international federations love to not make things simple for us. But tell us a little bit about how it's going to work, pots, groups, all that stuff. Well, I don't want to bore everyone or, or steal FIFA's thunder. But uh, yeah, it's, um, it, it's sort of like previous last couple of World Cups it's eight groups of four so there'll be four pots of seeds we know most of the top seeds uh, England uh, Brazil Argentina from South America and then you've got Belgium France and Spain um, well, one more well sorry Qatar of course the host and then there's one more to be decided 
Portugal, if they come through their playoff, would be a would be a seed. If they don't, uh, might be Mexico. It's all done off the FIFA rankings, so the most recent rankings, top top eight basically, mm. plus well top seven plus Qatar. Let's talk about England. Then they'll be in pot one mm. and. A bit lucky in a lot of ways after after the weekend. I mean, that first half, Switzerland could have been 2-3 up at half-time. Luckily, Luke Shaw got the goal right on half-time. Completely changed the complexion of the game. Some worrying signs in that first half, though. Dan, I admire the fact that you watched the friendly. Unbelievable. Professional, Matt. Well, you, you paid professional. to do it. Uh, uh, I, I obviously followed via my phone. My kids watched it, and they said, much like you, the first half wasn't very good and they gave me very detailed analysis of who was playing in the wrong position. But it got better, I'm yeah. led to believe. Yeah, and did. I saw the goals, uh, and it was a nice penalty. But it was a strange decision. But anyway. I think I think you have to caveat it as well, that it was a bit of a mishmash. Mm. You know, you had debutants. It's not a really kind of top England eleven that oh. they put out. So that's why I always kind of like to, to caveat. With, it was a kind of, you know, run out for a few players that maybe haven't played in a while, giving a few people their first cap. So it was kind of a... Like random mishmash of players, Jack. Would you? I mean, yeah. you were there, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I was. So it was weird. It kind of reminded me of England friendlies in the days before the Nations League. So the, the Nations League has changed the calendar in such a way that England have so many competitive games now that the pointless friendly is kind of a thing of the past. Whereas this was like the, a the throwback. Da- the David Nugent situation. Yeah, so the good old days. The pointless friendly. <laughs> and I think, like a lot of people, sat there. You know, it was, it was a nice day. There was a good crowd, but. I didn't feel like there was any real engagement with what was going on the pitch or who was playing or who was playing well. There was no tension there whatsoever. A light, a light kind of cricket hum vibe. A little but bit, But not yeah. as bad as when people threw the paper aeroplanes that there time. There were paper aeroplanes. There were. There were paper oh, aeroplanes and Mexican oh, waves. It no. was very much like a kind of family day out type vibe rather than uh, you know people engaged in England winning the football match type thing. Yeah, and Matt. As I've said before on his podcast feed, I only tend to talk to you when something bad happens. Oh, you're right. Okay. Unfortunately, there was crowd trouble again. Well, I saw this on social media, and I, and I you know, sort of thought, oh, do I have to start concentrating on this game now? Uh, but I didn't sort of see much about it anywhere else, to be honest. And I did look at the papers the following day, and I sort of tried to sort of see if other people contributed to the social media chit chat, and and they didn't really. Okay. So I'm I'm going to file this away as maybe something very isolated that does happen from time to time, unless someone wants to contact me and tell me that we've all massed, missed this dreadful story, because of course there have been dreadful stories in the yeah. past that we've talked about. I, I I suspect this was you know an, an isolated punch up. What do you reckon? Yeah, I d- I was quite surprised when I saw that tweet. So there was one one tweet that went quite viral during the game saying they about how awful it was and they'd seen violence in the concourse and that sort of thing now i'm absolutely not disputing that that tweet was accurate by from, from the person who wrote it but that was certainly not my experience at all that said i was at the i was at the far end of the, the kind of westernmost end of the press section which is nearer the sort of family stand whereas Lots of young people, sorry, lots of children, lots of families, very relaxed, very inclusive. The energy. paper aeroplane making exactly. workshop was happening Whereas over there. I, I think that, or I imagine that that tweet came from the opposite of the ground, which is more more blokey, more beery, yeah, yeah. slightly more aggro section of, of Wembley. And that was, the, that was the section of Wembley that was, you know, the loudest during the England games, the Euros. By the, by the same token, it's also the section of the ground that I think is probably likeliest to produce this kind of issue. So while I'm certainly not disputing that anything like that might have happened, I don't imagine that was the experience of most people there. And I certainly haven't picked up from 
from other people at the game that they had seen anything else like that at the time. I mean, let's get back to the football. This World Cup has always been targeted by the FA as a kind of good target for England to win. And back-to-back semi-finals and a final last summer come so close, you know, a few spot kicks away from winning a major tournament. So it's a big one, this, for England. Yeah, they have talked about it for a while. I mean, it, a lot of that talk started after one of our numerous resets when we'd done something awful. I can't remember which one it was now. But, um, yeah, it was like, yeah. <laughs> could be any of them. And I, think, I think it was Greg Dyke first started talking about it, and obviously there was a clock at St George's Park. But there's various strands to this reason why this World Cup felt realistic and it and it was St George's Park and this sort of sense oh my god we've got to stop embarrassing ourselves in these tournaments and then we started to see some age group success of course you know that year where we won two World Cups um, and we started to sort of do better in European under 21s and 19s and it just sort of felt like we were getting somewhere and of course there was this big revolution in academy football the EPPP plan which is all about sort of developing Premier League standard players and I think all these strands have combined I think the FA's just got a bit more professional um, that look we are going to start punching our weight in tournaments and I think you know Southgate has delivered you know we've become a good we've always been quite good at qualifying we certainly have you know we have a every, every decade or so we have an absolute shocker but we've become a really good qualifying team and now we appear I am grabbing this plastic easel sort of table becoming quite a good tournament team so you know yes there is optimism we've got a good side seems we've had a good ranking consistently high ranking for a while now and i think the other little thing that is almost sort of an accident is that this has moved to the winter and there was always this idea that even when we were you know a bit rubbish that we were really good at the start of the season so that's why we were quite good at qualifying and then we get to the summer and be knackered and injured yeah, well, I'm, I'm really intrigued to how that's going to work. Dan, do you feel like it's going to be an advantage or disadvantage? Because I feel like now all a lot of the Premier League players have kind of adapted their body clocks, if you like, to peak at the right time. And now they've got back-to-back major tournaments, not a massive break between them, very extended calendar, and it's a winter one. Is I just think momentum, be? the momentum's yeah. massive at the moment. I think England have got huge momentum going on at the moment. You mentioned the two previous tournaments. I feel like the building blocks are there now. They're, they're in place. They've come close twice. And we go back to those those youth players that we were talking about, the ones that have had success, the likes of Phil Foden, who you've been writing about in The Athletic this week, Jack. They're seasoned international players now. Someone like Phil Foden, I mean, you've been writing about actually what his best position is. Did you know the answer? Um, no, I don't. I think neither what links me, Gareth Southgate and Pep Guardiola is that we all love Phil Foden. Geniuses. We, Geniuses of the game. <laughs> Nobody knows his best position. If you watch City over the last year or two, Foden's not really played in central midfield much. He's played out on the right, he's played up front, he's played on the left. For England, Foden has played in basically all those positions as well as in the middle of the pitch, which is an area that Guardiola, I think, is a little bit reluctant to try him out in. At the game on against Switzerland on Saturday, he was playing up front with Harry Kane in the kind of Raheem Sterling role. He was pretty good at it. He was, you know, at the heart of the best stuff that England did for the first hour or so. Like the goal. Yeah, but I don't really think Southgate knows where best to use him. I also think that Foden's excellence and his versatility counts against him because wherever you play him, he'll play well. So they kind of move him around the pitch to accommodate to see what works best with the other players. But it's really, I think, I think this is the number one challenge that Southgate has got to to get the team to improve from how they did at the Euros last year. And I don't think he really knows what the answer is yet. Matt, have you got that answer? Because if, I think if Southgate names his best 11 at the moment, I don't think he'd have Foden in there. I'm not saying I wouldn't have Foden in there. 
But I think if Southgate was to pick his best eleven, I think it would be three at the back, three right backs, and ask, yeah, as many yeah. right backs as you can get in there. Yeah. But I think it would probably be Mount and Sterling playing off Harry Kane, so Foden wouldn't be in that team. But mm. there's so many options. If we were to pick the squad now, mm. I don't think Sancho and Rashford would be going for one. Uh, squad, um, yeah, yeah, okay. I think one of them might make it. But I, look, you're right. It's it's there's a, there's a lot up in the air, isn't there? I mean, yeah. it's funny. This friendly did feel a bit weird, didn't it? The one, oh, yeah. 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 But they didn't pick Samori, who I think, yeah. you know, is is there on form, isn't he? And, and Sancho yeah, had been really good form yeah, as well. Yeah, so there, there were some weird ones. Look, I remember, though, previous summer tournaments or tournaments where it's been like, well, we've got about 15, 16 players. Uh, the other half dozen don't really matter because, you know, they're not very good and they're not going to play, hopefully. We seem to have 25, 30 good players now, yeah. which I think is a massive <laughs> improvement. Do you yeah. think as well, I mean, um, stepping away off the pitch as well, it's been quite unique how I think for the first time, certainly ever in my experience, we've got groups of players who are acknowledging the wider issues, especially when it comes to Qatar, which has been a controversial World Cup. And you know, Harry Kane was asked about it in press conferences last week. The team was said to have this meeting where they discussed mm. uh, the issues uh, around the World Cup. You as a journalist, have you been quite surprised and about how they're even talking about it? Not surprised. I think it's almost, you can't avoid it anymore. Mm. I mean, and I think this moment has been coming. In some ways, I think they're coming to it a little bit late. I totally understand why. I don't think the country's focus was on it really yet. There was, the Qatar story's been a saga, right? Because they got it in 2010. And then there was a huge flurry because we didn't get it in 2018. It was a sort of, you know, kind of usual kind of we bid and we lost and it was embarrassing type story and Qatar and Russia won it and they must have cheated. It was so, kind of a sore loser yeah, vibe but to there, it. there was a bit of that. Yeah. And, and, and that, I think, dominated the narrative for sort of two or three years. And then everyone got really bored. And then FIFA, there was lots of scandals at FIFA and it was like, oh God, they're all corrupt. And then I think collectively, particularly in this country, but other countries as well, just gave up on that story. Mm. It's like, yeah, they, they, they probably bought it. Doesn't, you know, can we just move on? Uh, FIFA, yeah, we think they're corrupt. And we had sort of a four or five year gap where just I think we stopped thinking about it practically. Right, so what are they trying to do? A country of how many people are going to stage a World Cup in a city? And how many stadiums have they got? And have they, right? And then all these issues around migrant workers and the sort of country it is. People like me have been writing these stories, I think almost into sort of kind of a vacuum. You know, go, guys, guys, we've been pouring it out. And it's been a bit frustrating, to be honest. And I think some countries have got to it quicker than we have. You know, so in the, you know, it was, I think it was about six months ago, you saw countries like Norway, the Scandinavian countries, ones that do kind of speak up on social issues, being a lot more on they the front foot. They were wearing players, yeah, t-shirts and games and absolutely, like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and, I've, and I also sort of, I'm hearing a bit of it from North America as well, where I think there's a bit more kind of athlete empowerment. Activism, yeah. yeah. So look, we're getting there. And to answer your question, I think it is good. And do think we will continue to do it because I think we've got some big characters in the dressing room. I think we've yeah. got guys with social consciences in the dressing room. So I'm, I'm, I'm heartened that we got, we've got there. I think we've got there a bit late, but I'm confident that they will field those questions now. Well, I was just going to as well, Matt, before we, before we, we, we move on to Wales as well, is you're going out tomorrow. And one of the things that I think a lot of people haven't talked about is actually accommodation. Mm, mm. There is not really enough in Qatar. It's obviously quite a small place. Uh, fans, you know, where are they going to stay? What's it been like as a journalist trying to work out where you're going to be? Gonna yeah, yeah, where uh, are you going to sleep? <laughs> in the desert, in a tent, I think. Um, well, look, yes, it is one of the issues. Though the focus was on the stadiums and on the infrastructure and the building project, and that they kind of got there. 
as I think most people expected they would. They had an almost limitless budget, and they've had some issues, some big issues, massively falling out with their local, their, their neighbouring countries. I think, you know, really, you know, 2017-18, when they fell out, 18-19, with, with Saudi Arabia, that was a big issue. So they've, they've overcome a lot, and they've built the stadiums. Have they got enough hotels? No, they haven't. But why would they? Because they're never going to use these again, right? They want a million people to come, but they don't need that many hotel beds. So I think there's a few things that are unanswered. They intentionally left them vague. They're going to use some cruise ships. They're going to use some camping. Where the wags, the cruise ship well, wags. Yeah, yeah. Going they're going to do a bit of Airbnb, um, which will be different for Qatar. They've never had to do that sort of stuff before. So unanswered questions mm. around accommodation for sure. And I think if you go right back to the beginning of this, this was going to be a World Cup for the Middle East. And I think the idea was that people would sort of move around quite freely. You might go to Dubai for a bit. You might go da da da. You might do a bit of that, right? Dip in, dip out. So much of this was just done, you know. I won't say on the back of a fag packet, but you know, it, you know, just just we'll work out when we, we get around to it. Absolutely. Kind of and I think this is the last bit of the yeah. unworked out stuff. Jack, as a, as a journalist, do you got any concerns about going? Because obviously, the last tournament, you know, was very local. A lot of the England guys were at Wembley. You're, you're the England correspondent. Are you worried about going to Qatar at all? That's a good question. Um, I'm not worried about my own personal safety, um, especially because I know how much organisation there will be behind the World Cup. I think as a journalist, like I would rather, honestly, I would rather go to a World Cup where these these questions didn't exist. But of yeah. course, you don't get to choose the world that you live in. Um, I think that everybody who goes there has a duty to... I don't. I don't necessarily believe in media boycotting it. I think it's better for the media to go and then say and try and you know report and reflect what it's actually like there, um, rather than just not going. Uh, I, and you know, Southgate made that point himself the other day when he said he was asked about the potential of the England team boycotting it, and he said, "Well, no, we wouldn't boycott it. It's better to go and shine a light on on what's going on." I think the bit the big question for England for me and the England players is that I do sense from what they said this week that. They are going to do something or say something going into the World Cup. The big question, I think, is, is it going to be general or is it going to be specific? Mm. Like, is it, it would, the easiest thing, I think, would be for the players to say something very general, saying, look, we, we support equality, we support diversity, we support inclusion, football should be for everyone, and we hope these values are reflected in Qatar. I think the better thing for them to do would be to say something specific and say, we want to see investigations into workers who've died. We want to see compensations for the families of workers who've died. Here are some policies in Qatar, whether it's to do with workers or LGBTQ plus people or women or what, what, whatever else it might be. Here are the, th here are the specific issues be we have with Qatar. Be a bit more Qatar. tangible and proactive. Yeah, here are the specific yeah. issues we have with Qatar that we want to see addressed. I, my guess, and this, you know, early days is that they'll do the general thing rather than the specific mm. thing, but, you know, be let's wait and see because I think the England team have pleasantly surprised some people in the past with their stances on issues. Let's talk about Wales and, and Gareth Bale. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you, I kind of forgot Gareth Bale existed because he's barely played in the last six months. Um, had a, a decent Euros, but honestly completely slipped my mind because he doesn't feature for Real Madrid and he's kind of been pushed away. But, I mean, that was a pretty incredible game in Cardiff. Bale set. And Bale scores! noise the pre-match music it was it was incredible and uh, we've actually got a little message from uh, Laurie Whitwell who's been covering Wales's journey hopefully to the World Cup for us uh, this is what Laurie had to say about the game Wales have been in really good form recently 17 matches at home at the Cardiff City Stadium unbeaten the latest of those was against Austria in the World Cup playoff semi-final 
Gareth Bale was the main man, scoring two fantastic goals, one a free kick that was really special, uh, and the second a really smart finish. And then at the end of the game, he managed to eke out those last few minutes before being substituted. He was holding his groin, he was hobbling around the pitch, but his just presence on the on the pitch was enough for Wales to kind of see the game out. The team came together, real collective spirit that they've got. Rob Page has created a, a good environment for them, um, and they carried on really from what they did at the Euros last year, where they got out of their group, did well to do that. Obviously lost to Denmark, which was unfortunate, 4-1. It was quite a bad beating in the end. But they seem to be on a really good mode um, with the World Cup qualifying campaign. Finished second only to Belgium in their group. Meant that they got home form against Austria and then in the final against either Scotland or Ukraine. Um, and listen, they've got incredible atmosphere at that place. And when the anthem goes up, it's hairs on the back of your neck kind of stuff. Um, and so you really would back them against anybody at home. And that would be their first World Cup if they managed to make it since 1958. Um, and it would probably end Gareth Bale's career on a real high note because at the moment he is over in Real Madrid. He's getting criticism from the Spanish media. He responded to that, didn't he, after his goals um, against Austria, you know, basically calling the coverage that he's received disgusting. And I think his decision on where he plays his club football is governed by his ambition to Wales. He wants to be playing at a good level, uh, but consistently. And really all his focus will be on what he does with Wales after that. Um, but there's also, you know, the team is sprinkled with really good stars, really good honest pros. You've got Ben Davis at the back. You've got Conor Roberts, who's got great energy uh, at fullback. Uh, Nico Williams is coming on leaps and bounds. Ethan Ampadu is performing really well. Uh, and Aaron Ramsey, obviously, he went to Rangers to get more game time after his minutes at Juventus stalled. And he's another one who kind of peaks for these moments with Wales and he, he gives absolutely everything on the pitch. And as I say, you've got to give... Rob Page, credit for that. Coming out of nowhere, really, and, and governing this team extremely well. Big statement incoming. I was thinking about this the other day and I actually tweeted about it. I think because of what Flo says, you kind of do forget about Gareth Bale a little bit because he's had no impact on club football, really, for the last three or four years. If you look back at what he's done for Wales and what he's actually achieved for Real Madrid, I think not only would he go down as one of the best British footballers ever, possibly one of the best footballers ever. Oh, I just think he's incredible. You look at what he did for Wales the other night. He's very good. Uh, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to... That's a but. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like the Real Madrid marker, all that nonsense is just so ludicrous. And it, mm. I, you, you just want to laugh at them, really, yeah. to be honest with you. And I massively would side with Gareth Bale. Though it does seem a bit weird that I'm siding with this multi-millionaire who, you know, is being shouted at for not, not pulling his finger out. But, yeah, look, he's a, he's a fantastic player. And I, I, um, I actually saw him demolish my team Years ago, he was playing wing back. This is Southampton against okay. South End, and I remember sort of saying to people, "Yeah, Gareth Bale, he's going to be really good. That blow, look at him. He's everywhere. He's up and down. It was a complete all action performance. I think he took free kicks and everything. And um, yeah, the sort of first half of his career was absolutely spot on. I, apart from these little Wales cameos, I, I think the second half of his career's not been that good. And the, and some of that stuff around his trophies, I've seen all this, you know, this sort of you know, almost the revisionism to the revisionism. Look at what he's achieved. It's because he's been playing for Real Madrid. He's won loads of trophies. I, I just think the second half of his career hasn't been that good. Right, let's forget about Matt. Jack, I mean, he scored He scored goals in two Champions League finals. I, you would have watched him actually last season for Spurs. Do you, do you agree more with me than Matt does? Uh, I think I'd probably agree more with Matt than with you, Dan. <laughs> oh, Dan. <laughs> I, I think Bale has, if you look at what he's achieved in his career, he has been an amazing big game player. Like big games finals, he shows up, he wins things, he wins things for Real Madrid. 
he basically almost single-handedly dragged Wales to not just the Euro 2016, but to the semis Euro 2016. He got them to the Euros last year, where they didn't do quite so well. He's now trying to drag them to a World Cup. That'd be three tournaments in a row for a team that hadn't got to a tournament since the 1950s. So he, he's got this amazing kind of like comic book style ability to win games all by himself by doing these kind of spectacular feats of athleticism. It, clearly, he's not as good as he was before and hasn't been for a while. I think his decline started pretty early. He's never been someone like, I mean, to compare him to another great British player, I don't know, Giggs, Scholes, Keane, Gerrard, Lampard, those guys. Those guys hit a incredibly consistent level of performance in the Premier League week in, week out. I really don't think Bale can match them in terms of consistency, but he's always had that that kind of knack for the spectacular for the incredible like match-winning solo performance which is which makes him a much more in some ways a more exciting player and maybe in some ways a more exciting story but maybe less of a complete footballer as some other guys yeah don't don't look at the youtube comments right now dan uh, well i agree with us i don't know gonna, i don't know i have a feeling they might all be yeah. agreeing with you we're going to go to a break now i'm going to peruse the live <laughs> chat but when we come back we're going to look at usa canada and look at who we think the favorites are for the world cup in qatar with threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry. Also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Now, this is the last World Cup before it's expanded to 48 teams. Canada and the USA will, of course, be there next time round because they're hosting. Canada are there, USA not quite yet, but Flo, we're going to hear from some athletic writers, aren't we? Yeah, it's been a really good World Cup qualifying campaign for Canada. Obviously, a lot of people will know Alfonso Davies, who plays for Bayern Munich, and also Jonathan David, who plays for Lille. And we have our Canadian writer, Joshua Clark, who's recorded a little update for us after their big qualification to the World Cup. 
Hey guys, Joshua Cloak here at BMO Field in Toronto. We're just hours earlier, the Canadian men's national team were the first team in CONCACAF to qualify for the 2022 World Cup. A really improbable victory considering that this is just the second time Canada will be going to the World Cup. And just as recently as 2014, this team was ranked 122nd in the world according to FIFA rankings. That's why after the game, Jonathan Osorio, who was on the verge of tears talking to reporters, he made his men's national team debut in 2013 and he said for a Canadian kid, dreaming about this was impossible. And he looked up towards the fans, his ravenous fans, 29,000 fans, the largest attendance for a men's national team game here at BMO Field. And again, he was on the verge of tears because he spoke about all the kids, all the children all around Canada that will now have heroes to look up to in the footballing world. Canada is an incredibly diverse, multicultural country and they get up for World Cups, right? Every time there is a World Cup, the streets fill with people in Italian national team jerseys, in Portuguese national team jerseys, but never in Canadian men's national team jerseys. That's why this World Cup, qualifying for this World Cup, is going to be so incredible for Canada. Because as Coach John Herdman said after the game, he hopes it will galvanize the country, unite this country, bring them together, make them get out their Canadian national team shirts and support this team as never before. Soccer has long been the most participated in sport among Canadian children. More so than hockey, which is, as a lot of people know, is something of a religion here in Canada. But through years and years of that participation, more investment in coaching education, Canadian tier MLS teams coming to Canada, which provided young players with a pathway to success, we can now see the kind of the fruits of that labor. Right? You look at the players that scored here tonight, Kyle Laren, Tejon Buchanan, both from Brampton, both you know, from a city known for its high immigrant population. And that's, you know, that makes Brampton probably the, the, the soccer hotbed of Canada because it was a place where all these immigrants came, they picked up soccer, they, they played soccer, a sport that so much more accessible than hockey in so many different ways. And again, these are two players that, you know, came up through MLS teams and just had opportunities that years and years ago in 1986 when Canada first qualified for the World Cup were non-existent. So this is going to be a really transformative event qualifying for the World Cup in a way that, you know, it might not be for other countries. We know that soccer, football, is the most popular sport in most other countries on the planet. And I truly believe that with Canada going to the World Cup in 2022 and then hosting the World Cup in 2026, we could see the sports landscape in this country completely shift and we could see soccer really challenge hockey for the throne in Canadian sports. I mean, Atiba Hutchinson, 39-year-old in their midfield. He was the only player that was born the last time Canada qualified for a World Cup. So a huge moment, Jack. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Hutchinson does in the World Cup. You know, He's a player you've always seen at the end of a Europa League or Champions League highlights package yeah. for the last 10 years where he'll be banging one in for Besiktas at the end of the game. But they've clearly got this new generation of young players coming through Canada, some of whom are really exciting. But if you stick Atiba Hutchinson and QPR legend Junior Hoyle in there as well, you've got a really good mix. I like, I like that little QPR legend. He's still playing for Reading as well. I mean, I don't know I don't know how he is still hanging around the national team, but it's, a, it's an interesting blend, isn't it, as well? It's obviously been... 
a strange kind of role reversal as well for North American football. I was about to say soccer then, God. Um, but it's been a strange role reversal because the US didn't qualify for 2018. Can it, obviously Canada has ne have never been known for, for their football prowess and, and the US have been a big nation always in, in a lot of sports. The US are on the brink of qualifying. Uh, they, they've made it hard work, drew with Mexico the other day. We've actually got uh, another video message as well from our US correspondent, shall we say, Paul Denorio, who has been covering the US men's national team's quest for the World Cup. After tonight's 5-1 decisive victory over Panama, the US is so close to getting back to the World Cup after missing it in 2018. All they need to do now is go to Costa Rica on Wednesday and avoid losing by six goals or more. That should be pretty simple for them to do. They've given up just eight goals in their 13 qualifiers so far. Um, but, you know, it, it would lift really a huge burden that many of these players have had to carry, even though most of them weren't on the roster back in 2017 when the U.S. failed to get a result in Trinidad to book a spot in Qatar. One player who was there four years ago was Christian Pulisic, and his performance tonight against Panama was probably his best in a U.S. uniform. Christian has talked about kind of feeling a responsibility to be the star and to, to meet the expectations of the fan base and at times maybe trying to do too much for the U.S. men's national team and, and maybe that's caused him to overthink during games. Um, there was none of that tonight against Panama. He seemed to embrace the moment. He was wearing the captain's armband. He scored two penalty kicks. His third goal was a fantastic bit of skill to beat two Panamanian defenders and tuck the ball away in the far post. In fact, Christian Pulisic's service on set pieces were huge in setting up those penalties. He drew the fouls that led to those set pieces that, that uh, ended up being put into the back of the net. So he was by far the best player for the U.S. It was one of the best performances we've seen from U.S. men's national team player in some time. And I think we should also note that the U.S. Is, was able to go on the road to, to Mexico and get a result. They were able to come home and get a huge result against Panama to essentially put them in position to go to Qatar. And they did that despite missing some key starters. Weston McKinney out with a broken foot. Serginho Dest out with a hamstring injury. Brendan Aronson out with a knee injury. And so the U.S. was, was digging deeper, and, and yet we're still able to get a result. And you heard people talk about it after the game today. Paul Ariola said the mentality of this team is just different. We believe we can go anywhere and get a result. And I think, you know, over the course of this qualification cycle, and even before that, Greg Berhalter has built a team that has plenty of depth, players who won trophies this summer in the Nations League and Gold Cup, two completely different rosters, both able to go and win trophies. And that's really proved to be helpful in this qualification cycle. So the U.S. one step away from Qatar, a very confident team, a team that's shown it has more depth than maybe people thought about. And, and now the question is going to be, you know, what happens uh, between now and Qatar and, and how this team maybe changes, especially considering a player like Gio Reyna still working his way back into full fitness came on as a substitute again tonight. Christian Pulisic, you know, will tonight's performance kind of change his mentality around the national team? Um, a, a huge, huge result tonight. And, uh, you know, just a matter of finishing things off 90 minutes away from going to Qatar. How hard do you think it is to go from being that bit part player at club level to then having to be the main man at international level and the, the kind of the weight of the world being on your shoulders? Well, we were just talking about Gareth Bale. I think Gareth yeah. Bale has shown that, in fact, maybe... If you don't, if you're not the most important player at your club team, perhaps it, you can save up a bit of physical and emotional energy to really put put your absolute maximum into international football. I mean, Pulisic had a big reputation when he signed for Chelsea. He's obviously a good player. He's by no means Chelsea's most important player. Uh, but if he can put everything he's got into playing for the US and doing well at the World Cup next year, then he'll obviously be a superstar that way. We've had these big 
rivalries we've been talking about in North America, but in African qualification as well, there's huge rivalries happening. We'll be going to talk about um, Sadio Mane and, and uh, Mohamed Salah in a minute. But first, we want to play you this clip from Karl Anker, who's been out in Kumasi in, in Ghana at the huge game between Ghana and Nigeria. It was a nil-nil in the first leg. I think Carl's hopefully going to be at the second leg as well. But he sent us this video message from Kumasi. It is amazing. Try and hear what he's saying. But the Vuvuzelas are very loud. But you'll get a little taste of what it's like at this huge game. saw Carl's Twitter feed, but he probably had the worst seat in that in the house at that game and I really looked after the athletic journalist there. Did you see that picture? Yeah, it was amazing. I actually thought the view wasn't too bad. He sent me a video of the of the view. Like Ashley Cole, I, I, I know and I, I think his his legs were probably pretty tired. He was standing on a chair. I don't know if people would have seen this, but he was standing on a chair, uh kind of peering over people's heads in order to watch the game. Um but if anyone hasn't read Carl's piece on on the Athletic at the moment, it's a brilliant piece kind of giving a real taste of of the football culture out in Ghana and, and also, also the kind of magnitude of this game. It's a huge one and they've got the second leg of that to come. But another big rivalry repeat of the AFCON final, we've got Egypt playing Senegal uh, for Mane or Salah, who's going to go to the World Cup. I mean, it's probably a shame, actually, that we're not going to have both of them, isn't it? Yeah, it's advantage Salah. At the moment, Jack, but yeah, one of them's going to be missing out. It's always a shame when one of these players misses out on the big tournaments, and they're both talisman for the countries as well. Yeah, it would be a shame for one of them to miss out. But having I watched a fair bit of the African Nations Cup, including the final, and I have to say, I really hope Senegal do it. I thought Egypt were terrible, and it's, was... it's 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 hard as well. I mean, we we did a we did a, a podcast for this series just about Afcon, didn't we? I think we yeah. had Carl on that, and we were talking about the way that Egypt plays, not the way that Mohamed Salah wants to play. Yeah. So it's always also quite difficult for him because he's trying to be the Gareth Bale of a team that doesn't play free flowing football at all. It's very defensive, very kind of kind of stale and there's not much creativity to it and it's probably really difficult to then have all that pressure but the reality is there's only so much you can do right yeah it's just cynical dirty anti-football whereas Mm. 
I thought Senegal were at moments really good to watch. They've got some very talented players. They put a lot into the into their game, and I think you know what if they'd scored early in that final, I think they would have would have run away with it. And I also think that Senegal have got a much higher ceiling in terms of how good they could be at the World Cup under Aliou Cisse. So, and they've got a, a kind of more even squad of talent, yeah. right? They've got they've got quality across the whole pitch, whereas Egypt can't really say the Absolutely. same. Absolutely, like Mendy's obviously an incredible keeper. Koulibaly at Napoli's a fantastic centre back, so they've got a lot. They've got a lot of talented players there, not just Mane. So I'm hoping that Senegal win and they can really impress at the World Cup this year because it's obviously you know a country who, as a fan, I think the best African team I can remember at World Cup is Senegal 2002, yeah. mm. who were sensational. So if the 2022 Senegal team could be half as good as them, then they're going to do a great tournament. Yeah, one thing I'm going to massively miss this tournament is the Italian national anthem. Italy aren't going to be there, Jack. That's, that's always one of the highlights of international football for me, the Italian national anthem, but they've come a cropper knocked out and they're not going to be in Qatar. Yeah, I think it's even probably even better than France or Argentina, who I think the other the other classic anthems of a World Cup. But they yeah, I was going to say they didn't deserve it. They were a bit unlucky in that game against North Macedonia. I watched a bit of it. 30 they, shots. Yeah, was it? they had a lot of chances. <laughs> that said, they were play, play the only reason they went into these playoffs is because they finished their qualification yeah. campaign poorly. You know, in a, in the course of a qualification campaign, you get more than enough chances to seal your progress to the World Cup, but it's only because they've been so sloppy. They had to play in this game and yeah, they got unlucky, but they sh you should still be able to put the game away. So It's like failing to do your coursework and leaving it all to the exam yeah. You know, in the summer. You had opportunities to get the job done, to get your marks up. You failed to do it. I mean, I was quite satisfied as an England fan, the kind of sweet, sweet revenge uh, that they didn't make it. But I, that, I think I'll probably be, you know, eating a crying humble pie when we don't win the, win the World Cup. But how are you feeling, Dan, about... Obviously, it's an England show reunion with all, all, all yeah, of us yeah. as well. Good summer. Great summer, emotional summer, tough, tough way to finish it. But I think when you look back on the journey, it was a brilliant journey to that point. How do you feel about the World Cup? Do you seriously think England can win it? Because I do. I do, yeah. I, I do think it's kind of written in the stars that they go one better. So they've had the semi-final, they've had the final, losing finalist. It does feel like it's only natural now to, to go on and win it. But this is England and they have been burnt before. It's hard to know. Who, who the favourites are, really. If, if I was had to pick someone now, I think I'd probably say Brazil. But because it's all a bit unknown going to Qatar, it being in the winter, it kind of feels like it could be a little bit of a leveller, Jack. Yeah, I, I certainly agree it'll be a leveller. I also think what'll be a leveller is the fact that league seasons finish on, I think, the 16th of November. Yeah. And then one week later, the World Cup starts in Qatar. Mm. Normally, you get this sort of three, four-week build-in time. That's not going to happen. And I do think that means the quality of football in the group stage will be really low because team, like players will be, just be finding their yeah, feet. Sort have, of. They're, not, they've not been training together. They've been acclimatising to the different climate out in, in Qatar. So the, that'll be different. In terms of favourites... I'd probably put England and France at the top. I'd love to, see, the big part of me would love to see Brazil and Argentina do it, but I'm just, I imagine it'll be another carve up of the big European countries again, which is a trend that we've seen in the last few World Cups. Who are you backing? I'm back in England. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think of, of all the teams who are in good form as well, uh, very talented group. And I do think the seasonal thing will play into into our hands definitely so yeah i'm putting it i'm all in on england well, fingers crossed it will be the three alliance who are victorious at christmas which is not the right thing to say <laughs> at all but that is exactly what's happening that does us for this week's podcast thanks ever so much for tuning in and thanks to matt and jack as well do watch out for matt's business of sport podcast that will be on the athletic football podcast feed later on in the week have a great rest of the week cheers mm -hmm.
The Athletic.